Nope, you're not seeing double. It's a two-for-one Saturday. On the second episode of February 25th, I have on Kevin Williams. Kevin is a devout member of the LDS Church. He is also the host of a podcast called LDS Life. Kevin asked me to come on his podcast, which I did. In turn, he came on mine. In both episodes, Kevin and I had great conversations. On this particular episode, Kevin and I talk a lot about gospel principles. We also compare our faith journeys and ultimately come out agreeing that there's more that unites us than separates us. And that's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I want to take just a few moments here and just say thank you for listening. I can never tell you how much it means to me that you spend your time here with me. Now, on top of that, last year I received donations that helped me upgrade the audio, equipment, and software. This year I want to do the same thing for video. Now, if you want to help out and make a donation, you can do that by going to mormonrenegade.com and making a donation there. Also, check out the Mormon Renegade Supply Store at mormonrenegade.com and pick up some merch. Now, if you can't do any of those, I completely understand. It's not like it's been a banner year necessarily for our finances. So maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers. Finally, as I've started to do more video, there's a YouTube channel up for the podcast. But uh, just between you and me, yeah, I ain't going to be there very long because I have a feeling I'm going to get kicked off. So to stay one step ahead of that, I've made a channel on Rumble. So head on over to Rumble, look up the Mormon Renegade podcast channel there, and crush that like and subscribe button. Thank you. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade podcast. Kevin, how's it going, man? Good. How are you? This, I'm honored to be on your podcast. There's a country song. I can't remember who it's by, but in the title, I think it's the title, at least in the song, it says there's a first time for everything. I've never been interviewed on a podcast or a radio show for that matter, which is ironic because I've done a lot of interviews. So uh, I'm glad to be on your podcast. Well, I appreciate you having I appreciate having you on and appreciate you you coming on. So, you know, I I've been interviewed a couple different times and I I always lo- kind of like that change of pace because it it maybe will give me some ideas about how I talk to other people or it's just nice to know what it feels like to have the shoe on the other foot. You know what I mean? So sure. I, I find that there's there's definitely some benefit on getting on the other side of the table, so to speak, from this. But um, as I was saying in the open here, Kevin, Kevin's a devout LDS guy who is uh, the host of his own podcast. Uh, and, and what was the name of that podcast again, Kevin? LDS Life Podcast. See, for some reason, I keep wanting to say this LDS Life Podcast, but it's just oh. L- it's just <laughs> LDS P- Life yep. Podcast. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And. The, the other fascinating thing I find about Kevin is that, um, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Kevin, is that uh, Kevin is blind. And so yeah, that's going to come up in the podcast later anyway. Yeah. And so as, as he's, as he does his podcast, I'm, I'm really, uh, really kind of amazed at that he's able to do such a great job 
with with some of the limitations that that he's had and so it's it's kind of faith promoting in a lot of ways to to know that um so kevin real quick did you you currently live in montana is that where you I grew do. up i grew up in eastern oregon actually okay yeah all right what what part like ontario or yeah ontario yep 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 and and you were born a mormon right correct Tell me about your childhood. Was it a really devout home? What what was it like? Well, yeah, it, it was a very devout. Uh, my parents were very devout LDS, and yeah, we 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 were typical. We went to church every Sunday. My mom was the young women's president when I was in my teens. I know I don't know what her title was specifically. I know when I was a little kid, about three, four years old, she was in Young Women's as well. I don't know her title. My dad was in the bishopric at least once that I remember. And I'll tell you something interesting about my childhood, though. I remember when I was five years old, this would have been June or July of 85. I was five years old. And I was playing with a friend of mine in the front in his front yard, and I think if i remember correctly i wanted to climb a tree or something i wanted to do something i want to say it was climbing a tree and my friend said you can't do that because you're blind and i i I was dumbfounded i didn't know what being blind was i maybe i knew but nothing my parents never made an issue or at least my mom didn't now my dad was a lot more protective of me than my mom. My mom was always encouraging me to go out and do things on my own and go out into the community. So um, you need to know that my mom pretty much raised me. My dad made that very clear to me when I was a young adult, that my mom was the one raising me. And anyway, I get home and I asked my mom if I'm blind. And she said, yes. And I didn't believe her. (laughs) <laughs> and here I was not being able to see. I didn't believe her. And I think I didn't believe her because I did everything that everyone else did almost. I rode a tricycle in my driveway. I rode on a skateboard, although I didn't ride it the correct way. I rode it sitting down, but I thought that's how you did it. No one showed me exactly how to ride a skateboard, probably because they didn't want me to run into something and fall over. Um, you know, so I didn't believe anybody if they told me I was blind. I don't know how you feel about that, but no, uh, I, I I think there's a certain, I think there's a certain beauty in not overemphasizing something that can be construed as a, um, as a, as a handicap or as a setback. You know what I mean? I think yeah. sometimes we we I think we shortchange humans who have something that we would perceive as a disability, right? And we shortchange them by not expecting out of them as as maybe as much as we should. I'll give you an example. I I have a I have an acquaintance who has a son who is a high functioning autistic. Oh, and all this kid wants to do is just get out and get on his own. Right. Yeah. For the longest time, his mom, and it came from a good place, right? It was like, no, no, you can't do this or you can't do that or, or whatever. 
And uh, I remember I, I ended up because I just felt for the kid. He was such a good hearted kid. And so I actually hired him. Um, I, I was able to talk his mom into letting me hire him, which, you know, I would pick him up a couple days a week. I w- was working in the office during this time of my career, so I could bring him into the office and just give him little tasks. And one of the things I did is I, I said, okay, you see this supply closet? This has all of our survey supplies in it, and it's going to be up to you to count all the bundles of, of steaks and all the rebar and all the caps and, and just keep a good running tally of it. And he did that, and he did just a heck of a job. And mm-hmm. he was just a great kid to have around. And fast forward, he he lives on his own now with some help, right? He has people that come in and check on him. But, yeah. I mean, he, he goes to work. He has a, a social life. So, no, I, I, I think it's it's fascinating the way your mom went about it. And, I, I gosh, I, you know, I think it was probably the right thing to do. I mean. Well, yeah. Well, let me finish the story because it gets more fascinating. So I I guess, I don't know. I, I still can't figure it out. I just assumed that anybody that was blind was stupid. <laughs> mm. And I remember meeting some blind people and I didn't, I guess me just being a kid, I just didn't put it all together. I don't know. But there, I think there was just such a negative connotation towards blindness. And I remember... One day when I was in kindergarten, I was rolling paper into my Braille writer. And my dad would sometimes say, look at what you're doing so people won't know that you're blind. And I thought, what does that Mm. mean? And so let's fast forward now to October of 1987. I believe it was on a Wednesday night. I can't remember the date, but I do remember it was in October. And my second to the oldest sister asked me, are you sad that you're blind? Now, I don't know why my sister asked me this question. Sometimes maybe we ask questions and don't know why. Maybe she was divinely inspired. I don't know. And I just thought that I had to say yes. And I was coming to the term. I was starting to come to the terms that I was blind at this point. And I was just barely beginning to realize that I was a little bit different than my peers. So I said, yes. And she said, you shouldn't be because you'll see when you die. And I thought, oh, okay, then I won't be. And I think it was in February or March of 1988. I was in second grade. And I used to go to this girl's house that I had a huge crush on and play with her sometimes. And so I I used to walk home with some kids that were mean to me. And sometimes I would provoke them to be mean to me so that I could go see this girl that I had a crush on. Now, obviously, (laughs) you know, having a crush on someone in second grade is a lot different than when you're a teenager. Sure. But still, I, I thought the world of this girl, she was kind of my Jenny to Forrest Gump, you could say. Um, I don't know what happened to her. But anyway, so I would go over there. And it was the only way that I knew of to get over there. Because her mom told my mom, who told me, oh, uh, let's just call her mom Janine. She said, Janine is very upset with the way that uh, 
these kids have been treating you. If you ever run into trouble, just go to her house. Obviously, I jumped on this opportunity. Now, I had to calculate it because if I did this all the time, people would catch on. So I really had to be methodical about it. Right. So I probably did this once every two or three months or something so that it wouldn't be so obvious as to what I was doing. So one day I was over at Janine's house playing with uh, my little friend, I guess you could say, uh, Cheryl. We'll call her Cheryl. And, you know, Janine just said, oh, I wish uh, this kid would stop being mean to you. I wish this. And I wasn't even looking for sympathy. But Janine's daughter, who was younger than Cheryl, she was four years old, Um. I told her something and I said, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I wish that uh, these kids would stop making fun of me. I'm blind. And I was not looking for sympathy. It may have sounded like it, it was my way of trying, tr finally accepting the fact that I'm blind, finally accepting the fact that I'm different, and finally just moving on. And it made my life easier. I don't know what you think of this whole story, but I, I think your audience would be fascinated by it. No, I, I, as I think about that, it, it sounds like you had to come to, to grips with, with this fact that you were blind. Right. And it's something that yeah. you just had never given thought to before. And, and it sounds like that, that through this experience, that was your opportunity to, to kind of embrace that fact. Right. And come to terms yeah. with that fact. And then that probably set up how you would, would, look at life from that point going forward yeah it, ironically when i finally came to grips it wasn't even a harsh reality it just was okay i'm blind i accept it i'll just keep living life the way i always have been just knowing that i'm blind it was not a harsh reality or anything like that right no that, i could see how that would work that makes that makes sense yeah so, no, that makes total sense, Kevin. So did you serve a mission? I did. I served a mission in Nova Scotia in, uh, well, the Canada-Halifax mission. Now, the interesting thing about that is I was told that I was only able to serve a mission for 11. Well, I was told in the beginning I couldn't serve at all because I'm blind. But fortunately, I had a state president who was willing to vouch for me. And told gotcha. me during an interview before I got the Melchizedek priesthood that if I knew a mission president, they might be able to sponsor me. Well, it just so happened that that mission president was my great uncle. So okay. I, went, I served under him for 11 months. And I'll tell you a little bit about that story. I didn't know any of this till just a few years ago. At first, the area authority, Elder Gary Coleman, not from different strokes, but uh, <laughs> Elder Gary Coleman said, no, I couldn't serve a mission. The mission president, who was my great uncle, asked why, and it's he said, because your insurance is going up, would go up. And he said, by how much? And he gave him the quote, and he said, I'll pay it. And then he said, okay, we'll send him out then. And the agreement was 11 months only. Wow. And, and is that what you served, was 11 months? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was kind of upset for a long time about that 
But I think it was meant to be, the more I think about it, because I got to spend a lot more time with my mother than I had had I come back in 2001, because I left in 99. And it prepared me for her death in 2002, and I relied on her an awful lot. So I really think it was meant to be that I would only serve the 11 months. So if you don't mind getting a little more personal, because it sounds like your mom, as as all of our mothers are, but maybe even more so for you, was, was someone who was really trying hard to prepare you for the life ahead of you. And, and obviously, Oh yeah. Because of that maternal relationship, um, there, there's a certain comfort there. Was it? Oh, absolutely. When, when Um, she, when she passed, Kevin, do you think that you felt it more acutely because maybe you felt like she understood you better than, than anybody else? I do not like the way I handled my mother's death. I'll admit that. Because when she died, I was just finishing up final exams. I didn't really have time to think about it. And I really wanted to put it aside because I didn't want people feeling sorry for me. In fact, it was just weird. Because the day I went to school the next day and people said, what's new? And I thought, geez, how am I going to break the news? I said, well, my mom passed away yesterday. And are you sure you want to be here? Yeah, I got to get this done. And I, I, looking back, I, I probably I should have handled it differently. But I'll tell you, it didn't hit me until a little after a month that she passed away. Right. Um, because I guess it was two months. Let's see. She died in December. Yeah, about a little over a month because I came home from a trip. This is back in 2000, uh, 2002 that she passed away in December. So early February, I came home from a trip to Washington, D.C., because I was lobbying on behalf of the blind community. And that's when it hit me that she was gone. Usually she'd be there when I'd come home from a trip, excited and very perky, wanting to know all about my trip. And um, the, the, it really hit me hard that she was gone. And I'll be, it was hard for me to survive without her because she was my connection to the outside world. and. That's when I knew I had to step up my game and get a bunch of training in Louisiana on how to be blind or how to deal with blindness and all those things. So, yeah, it it hit home, but it didn't hit home the way I wanted it to. Yeah, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself about that. First off, I, that first week and month after after someone like that that that's close to you, especially a parent passes and you're young. I think there's just a level of shock. I remember when my old man passed, it was a good solid. Yeah. I want to say month before I really even began to wrap my mind around what was going on. Right. Because you're so busy with, with preparations for a funeral and you got people coming by. And then all of a sudden when that all dies down, you got to kind of redefine, a little bit of who you are, what your family looks like going forward. So no, I, I I don't think you should be hard on yourself at all, Kevin, about that. I think that's probably pretty normal. Yeah. So, so you ended up going to Louisiana to, to kind of get some. Yeah. It was uh, back on how to take care of yourself and stuff. 
yeah, back in uh, June of 04, I went there and it was a lot like boot camp. I learned things that I'd learned how to do when I was a kid, but I'd forgotten or learned things that I knew I could do, but I wasn't sure how. It was an emotional roller coaster. Um, there were days where I felt like I was on top of it all. There were days where I wasn't getting anything. In fact, the first two and a half months, I wasn't getting any anything. And I remember coming to home one day to my apartment, just wanting to break down in tears. I never did, but I just remember I had a hard day and I thought, am I wasting my time out here? I'm not getting anything. And I really was thinking for the second time about going back home and I don't know what happened, David, but the next day, everything just clicked in. I don't know if it was divine intervention or what. Everything just clicked like a light switch went on that night or something. You know, I think sometimes, Kevin, this has just been my experience. I think sometimes we have to break as people before yeah. God can intervene. And I know with me, the more I feel like I got stuff, the more... Shouldn't say always, but a lot of times, the more I think, okay, I got this, I can do this, the more the less I tend to consult with God sometimes. Yeah. And and what that usually takes, at least in my experience, and but keep in mind, I'm probably God's most petulant and stubborn child, too. But <laughs> a, a a lot of times it's it's at that breaking point where you you're forced to hit your knees and then look up and, and ask God for help. And that's when things well, normally well, the thing was, uh, I was having a faith crisis, so I never did pray that much. Okay. Just things, I didn't even pray for help. Just things clicked. I don't know what it was. It's like somebody flipped a switch in my sleep or something. Let's talk about your faith crisis for a second. What yeah. kind of things were you struggling with? Well, even before my mom passed away, I wasn't, I didn't like the fact that I almost didn't get to go on a mission. I knew of other blind people being turned down that I thought were perfectly capable. I didn't like the way certain people were treated. I had friends back in the day that were a little rough around the edges, and I didn't like the way some LDS people treated them. You know, I had a friend that lived with his girlfriend, or no, I had a friend that had a roommate that, you know, him and his girlfriend and his roommate were all living together. I didn't dare tell my parents about it because my dad mm. especially would be no have been has been known to say, Oh, so and so's a renegade, and he's living with his girlfriend, so and so's whatever, just call him a name and Well, your dad would I be thought, really your dad would be really upset that you're talking to a Mormon renegade right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think my dad might I think my dad did know about this friend that I'm referring to, because he did say something to me one day about some girls. And one of those girls was my friend's roommate's girlfriend. My dad was in the Bishop Bricks. I think he might have known. He didn't say anything if he did, but maybe he was hinting. But yeah, I just, I kept it from my parents. I didn't tell them at all. And, you know, I, I, read about Mark Hoffman, and that really shook me up. I'd heard of the name Mark Hoffman in college, but I didn't know who he was, and a friend of mine called me during the same time that my mother was passing away and said, have you heard of Mark Hoffman? I said, yeah, I've heard the name. And he said, he's a guy that forged documents to the church. Oh. So I started asking around to my extended family, because I didn't grow up in Utah, 
And I had no idea who this guy was. In fact, I was surprised I didn't. I'm pretty educated. And so when school let out in 2003, during the summer of 03, I read, I listened to the book Salamander. Oh, that just made it even worse. I thought these general authorities claim to say that they're in touch with God all the time. I don't think so. Just uh, If it wasn't for the fact that I was living with my dad, I think I would have just gone inactive right there. But because I was living with my dad and there were rules I had to follow, I had to go and kind of put on a face, but my heart wasn't into it. That's for sure. You know, I don't. I'll go ahead. I think we all go through that. I mean, whether you're a fundamentalist or a mainstream LDS person, I think, I think we all have moments where we have to kind of fake it till we make it, so to speak. Right. I don't think that that's too terribly unusual. Well, yeah, I, I let, let's just put it this way. If the right girl were to have come along mm-hmm. and hold me off of my knees, metaphorically, like that song Footloose, uh, we would have gone down the forbidden path, so to speak. Let's okay. put it that way. I wouldn't have cared if it was the right person. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so to kind of sum up here, it sounds like you, you kind of had a – it doesn't it doesn't feel like you had a, a faith crisis around so much the gospel as you did maybe with like church leadership and church culture and maybe yeah. the mark the mark hoffman thing so so your faith crisis isn't necessarily centered around doctrine or around um truth claims but more maybe the structure and and lds yeah culture. exactly would that be I, I... would that be a fair assessment yeah, and I did have a major problem. You got to realize too, back then I was a Democrat, and so I really had an issue with Ezra Taft Benson. In fact, my dream was in the next life just to hound Ezra Taft Benson and debate him, and really hound on him. <laughs> we can get into that later. I was going to say uh, he was my favorite LDS prophet. Oh, he's oh he's awesome. He's very intriguing. Uh, you know, I've come around now. Admittingly, I still am liberal on certain subjects, but gosh, I had to admit to myself when I was in college at SUU, even though I was a Democrat, I had to admit President Benson had some good points. Yeah. Uh, I had to admit, and uh, yeah, I had an issue with Brigham Young, but yeah, you're right. It wasn't so much doctrine as much as cultural things. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So how did you how did you manage to work past those? Well, interestingly enough, in 2010, my cousin introduced me to a girl we'll call Gina. That's not her real name, but for her protection, I'm not using her real name. And I was also friends with a girl, I still am uh, friends with a girl, I'll use her real name, Ashley. She won't mind if I use her real name. And Gina and Ashley were two really different people. I'm still friends with Ashley today. Ashley knew that I was going through a faith crisis. She's not a member, by the way, but she was with me during this whole time. And I'll admit, at the time, Ashley just fed into more of my faith crisis. And this was at a time when I was working as a customer service representative. I don't know if I should say the name. But I was working as a customer service representative, 
And my cousin called and said, Kevin, uh, how do you feel about dating someone that's older than you? I said, I don't care. And she said, well, she's really nice. She's LDS. She went on a mission. I thought, okay, I'm not planning to be active in this church much longer, but go ahead. Well, as we started talking, Gina and I, the girl that my cousin set me up with, I started thinking, okay, I may not be the most devout LDS person, but gosh darn it, Gina's what I want. Gina has the same values. Uh, Gina understands the whole concept of food storage. Gina understands intuition better than Ashley. Uh, hell, this is the girl. I want a girl like this. And Gina and I had a heart-to-heart -heart discussion one night. I told her, I, I am not the most devout member of the church. I said something to that effect. And I don't remember what happened in that whole conversation, to be honest. But I could not sleep that night. I felt like I had to make a huge decision here. Was I going to stay in the church or not? I felt like this was a real awakening moment. I felt like God was saying, okay, Kevin, do you want it or not? Are you in or are you out? And I really had to think about it. I, I think I only got two hours of sleep that night. And at the time, it was more for Gina's sake. I thought, yeah, I'm in. Now, maybe it was for the wrong reasons. And ironically enough, Gina and I had a bad breakup. Gina was not the devout LDS woman that she came across as being. But it made me think about what I really wanted, and so slowly but surely, I got back into the faith. So now, so you went back, but did you ever have like those cultural problems kind of resolved, or did you just say, "Okay, this is probably just something I'm going to have to live with if I want to remain in the LDS Church"? Uh, I would say a little bit of both. Um, you know, it's it's a funny thing. When you get older, the less things bother you. Right. Uh, I still have issues with the culture, but I have learned to separate that from the doctrine. Right. And if you're going to base your testimony, I was listening to a good podcast this weekend. It's a Come Follow Him podcast from John, by the way, and Hank Smith. If you're, if you're going to base your testimony on an apostle or on the doctrine, or on, on an apostle, then you're screwed. That's not what they said, but that's basically what they said in many words. And I thought, yeah, that's right. Look at all the things that have happened that I have issues with. The vaccine, the August 12th letter. The way that the church handled COVID. Now, I think the church handled COVID right in the beginning because we didn't know much about it. And sure. again, it's a worldwide church. And so, yeah, during the first month or two, I also think there's other reasons we can get into later about why the church shut down the way it did. But for heaven's sakes, after the third month opened back up, this we know that this is a control issue now, and the church was taking its own sweet time. So yeah, I do have issues with some of the church policies and the culture, but the doctrine, to me, makes sense. Sure.
Sure. And what about the Hoffman stuff? Because that's that is an interesting uh, period of time within the LDS church, because if I'm not mistaken, the church paid an exorbitant amount of money for what would be later. Oh, yeah. The Salamander letter, right? Well, the Salamander letter, actually, I can tell you what happened with the Salamander letter. The Salamander letter was actually, I believe, Steve Christensen was going to buy it. And then this guy, uh, Elder Sorensen, I can't remember his first, President Sorensen, he was, ironically enough, the president of the mission I served in about a decade and a half later. Uh, let's see, a decade and four years later. And eventually President Sorensen would deliver it to the church. It was a mess. I just uh, came to the conclusion maybe the general authorities wanted to believe so bad that it was real. You know, how many times have we come across something, or how many times have we received the gift of discernment that said, no, Kevin, you shouldn't go to this place. No, Kevin, you shouldn't hang out with these people. But I did anyway, and I paid for it. And actually, reading the Salamander, the book again, the second time, I realized, yes, I think the general authorities were suspicious of Mark Hoffman before the bombing. They didn't publicly admit it. But I think they were based on some things that I'd read in that book. I realized that the second time. Now, don't take offense to this, but I'm going to push back yeah. here a little bit on this. Okay. Because even if they had some doubts, wouldn't you go to great lengths to kind of verify what it is Hoffman's peddling? Um, and then also... Um, I can kind of buy the argument if it's one or two people that, hey, we just really want this to be true, right? Yeah. But there's there's essentially 15 of them up there on the top shelf of, of leadership. So, like, nobody said, hey, we, we should probably really stop and think about this and maybe have this vetted a whole bunch. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the thinking was on that. I wasn't there. I'm not trying to soft pedal this. Sure, sure. But no, I... yeah, it, I I thought about that too. Why didn't the church come out and say, we've got to stop dealing with this guy? One of the problems I do have with the church, and my dad told me this when he served a mission, uh, he, he and his uh, second wife served an LDS mission. Image is everything to the church. Mm-hmm. And having put that in mind, I don't like it, but I think the church, the general authorities were thinking, oh my gosh, if we finally, if we admit this, we're going to look bad. Of course, looking back, they should have done what you exactly what you said. And I don't know if it's true, but I had heard that Bruce R. McConkie was warning that these documents were fake. I don't know if that's true. That's something I had heard. If that's true then good for Bruce R. McConkie for right. noticing something that they didn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I wish All I right, had a better ahead. answer. No, no, that's good. That's good. I was wondering how you how you managed to kind of get past that, right? Yeah. Because I, I think that these kind of conversations are important, even though, you know, obviously I'm a fundamentalist, you're a developed yeah. LDS guy. Uh -huh. I think we all have that dark night of the soul at some point, right? Where we have sure. to sit down and reassess our beliefs. Our, our spiritual backs are up against the wall. So I'm always curious how someone comes out on the other side of that. 
Yeah. Um, some some guys just they go the other direction where none of it's true. Um, in my case, I went the other direction. Was like, no, it's true and probably more true than what anyone yeah. really knows. And then in, in your case, you were able just to make it all work, which is great. Well, I'll tell you the funny thing. Uh, believe it or not, Ashley kind of helped me during this faith crisis towards the end. Hmm. I say that because, and I didn't realize it, when I would go back to Buffalo to see her, I was just trying to get Ashley to date me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a little too much fun, but we won't go there. We're still good friends, though. And... Uh, It was interesting because when I went back to Buffalo, people, including Ashley, thought I was very ultra conservative. But I go back to Utah, I get just the opposite reaction. (laughs) And I thought, what? Am I supposed to be an ultra conservative in Buffalo, New York, but not in Salt Lake? And it took me a little bit of time, but I realized uh, the cultures were very different. Well, I realized that in the beginning, but it didn't really sink in. Uh, gosh, a family on Buffalo, New York, not a member of the church, not raised in a religious background. Oh, man, it's like watching the TV show Roseanne, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, th- there there is some regional differences, right? I live. Oh, yeah. A, I live for a few, few years out on the eastern shore of Maryland, and, like, they're... Their Republican, I mean, their dem, their Republicans would be our Democrats, right? Sure. And yep. and their Democrats would be our communists. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. there. There is there yeah. is a little bit of difference there, regionally speaking. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I I think the other thing that helped too with the faith crisis was I introduced Ashley to some friends of mine that were devout still are devout LDS. And I think that Ashley softened her heart towards the religion. And I came back in slowly, but surely. And um, yeah, it was probably different than most people's faith crises, but yeah. Uh, Yeah. I don't think there's such thing as a quote, typical faith crisis. I think there may be some common things that everybody wrestles with, but I think that by and large, it's, it, you know, they're very unique and individual. So, so, you know, I'll tell you one more thing about that. When I was reading the book Salamander, I don't know if this was a guilty conscience. I don't know if my mom really was there, but uh, I remember having a dream and I said something to my mom and she kind of raised her voice at me saying, you don't have a testimony. That's when I woke up. And I thought, geez, if that's if that was my mom, uh, yeah, she's right. <laughs> wow, that kind of uh, made me think a little. So, so what's your testimony based around now then? Well, I base it on uh, the doctrine. I I do believe in the Book of Mormon. I do believe in the line of authority. I do. You know, a lot of uh, one of the reasons I agreed to stay in the church believe it or not, was the social aspect. I liked the social networking. We're not talking about Facebook or any of that. We're talking about social net. You know, you go to a place, and I realize that this happens in every religion, but it's really really obvious here. And I'm sure it's probably true in your church. You move somewhere, you're automatically plugged in with a network of people. 
I can call up anyone. Well, I shouldn't say it, but there's somebody I can call and say, oh, I need a ride to this place. Can you come get me tomorrow or whatever? Sure. Uh, That's not the only reason, but that was one of the reasons I decided to stay in. And it really, you know, it's one of those things. I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas for a while. I did not like my ward. And if I didn't have a testimony of the church, I would have left right there. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So what got you into podcasting? Well, that's an interesting story. I've always had a heavy interest in radio since 1987, a real interest. And I remember asking my dad one night, how the, because I I had a ghetto blaster when I was six years old. Remember those old ghetto blasters Mm -hmm. with the big speakers? Say what you want about those ghetto blasters, but they had phenomenal reception, didn't they? Yeah. Oh, especially on the AM dial. Anyway, I had an old ghetto blaster. And I used to think that the music I was hearing was live in concert somewhere in Boise or Ontario or somewhere. And I just remember riding home from Salt Lake because we were there for a family vacation over Thanksgiving. We were riding back late Saturday night. And I thought in my mind, this can't be right. Because if I'm hearing these songs, and how come the people I'm hearing different songs, people just don't travel around so instantly and perform and leave. And I thought, furthermore, nobody I know is seeing, is hearing them perform on the radio. This can't be right. And so I asked my dad, how is this happening? And he explained that radio stations have a transmitter, and he didn't get too technical, because I'm not sure that my dad knew it all either, but he knew enough, being an engineer. He said radio stations have a transmitter, they transmit radio waves, and that's how radios pick them up. And he explained, and my dad didn't know anything about soundboards. Well, he did. He probably knew a little something, but not much. He just said everything you're hearing is coming over the microphone. I thought, oh, which wasn't true. But again, my dad, you know, how do you explain that to a kid that's seven years old? (laughs) You know, it wasn't my dad's fault necessarily. He did the best he could. And I just thought, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be cool if I had a transmitter in my bedroom and I could transmit all over Ontario with the records that I have? Because I had little kids' records. Yes, we had records back then. (laughs) and uh then i thought well i had and then i had to go to my sister's choir concert my second oldest sister and i thought well wouldn't it be nice if i had a transmitter and i could carry the transmitter microphone to her concert and broadcast it throughout the whole community of ontario and then I went to my brother's ba- basketball game, church ball game. Wouldn't it be nice if I could carry this transmitter and the microphone and I could announce the ball game? You know, just all these things I was thinking of. I eventually got into radio, but podcasting, I was in podcasting before podcasting was cool. I got into podcasting in 2006, uh, thanks to my friend Ashley. We had started talking again. We reconnected which is another story I'll get into maybe at a later time. But we reconnected, and I told her about how I'd like to do podcasting, but I didn't know how. And she sent me a link 
And it's it was a company that's no longer around called GCAS. And I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. So I signed up and started doing podcasts the worst way you could ever do it over the phone. That is the worst way you could ever do a podcast because it sounded terrible. But that's all I had back then. Sure. And then I figured out how to mix all the, you know, I figured out how to save what I was doing to a playlist, mix it all together and publish it. And so I was doing this before most people knew what podcasts were. And then Gcast went out of business. I had moved on. I was working customer service. I really didn't have time to do anything about podcasting. I felt that I'd probably get back into it again. And eventually in 2015, I got back into it. I was dating a girl and she just nagged me like no other to get into it. Finally, I was sick of her nagging me about it, and I got into it just to shut her up. I got a website up and running and everything. Uh, I'm glad she did nag me about it, though, because uh, one of the reasons I got back into podcasting is I wanted to interview Cliven, Cliven Bundy, mm. um, which I never did, but I interviewed Ammon, which was better. So, yeah, that and then I started. So now I do two podcasts. One is the LDS Live podcast, and the other is Canning Plus Seven, a prepping podcast. Okay. Yeah. So I've, I've listened to your podcast a little bit. Oh. And the, the thing that, that comes across to me is that you, you don't mind necessarily calling out the church when you feel that like they're wrong on something. No, I don't. Not at all. Do you worry about your membership at all? Oh, a little bit, but I have to remind myself that Jesus Christ wasn't popular. And I also have to remind myself, I can't remember the whole story, but there was a guy in Germany that was disobeying the laws of the land, and he got excommunicated, and eventually after he passed away or something, or when he made it back to the States, they reinstated his membership. I just have to remember uh, God can fix it. It may not be in this life, but it can be in the next life. Right. And just because I'm excommunicated or whatever, and I'm not looking to be, but if it happens, doesn't mean I'm going to go out and be promiscuous and drink and do drugs and all that. Right. Right. Because that's one of the fascinating things, right? Because that, that... LDS church culture, and I feel like I can speak to it because I was a member of the LDS church for 20 years. I There is a certain amount of you're going to toe the line or reap the consequences, right? Oh, absolutely. And it stems back to, and I think the church does a terrible job at this, but it stems back to what we were told as kids, what we taught on the mission, the prophet. He receives revelation and that primary song, follow the prophet, follow the prophet, follow the prophet, don't go astray. Right. Well, yeah, so the church needs to do a much better job at telling us there's a difference between policy and doctrine. You don't have to agree with the policies. Now, that doesn't mean go dis- don't, that doesn't mean disagree with every policy. Don't be, don't be rebellious just for the sake of being rebellious. <laughs> you know, but what, uh, but, but, but what happens when that policy conflicts with doctrine? Well, what ha- I uh, give me an example. 
Well, I'll just use the famous fundamentalist one, right? Obviously, plural marriage is still doctrine. Mm -hmm. And if it's still doctrine, then it still requires adherence. So if you're not adhering to it, or at the very least, if it's not available, you have a policy that conflicts with an eternal principle. Well, to be fair, I haven't studied polygamy as much as I should. My understanding of polygamy, I don't think it was meant to be around forever and ever. Now, you did tell me about uh, Brigham Young supposedly said something, and I know that John Taylor said that polygamy would never leave the earth. And I'm not sure, and I guess it's just because I haven't studied upon it that much, but I'm under the impression I don't know that polygamy was supposed to be around forever and ever and ever and i could be wrong but i do know and i i understand why the church got rid of it partly because utah wanted to become a state and in order to get you know get rid of polygamy or in order to do that we had to get rid of polygamy interestingly enough there were people that were going down to mexico to be polygamists Mm -hmm. so I have to study more on polygamy to really get the grasp of it. But I was always under the impression that I, I, I don't think in my hardest of hearts, I don't think that it was meant to be around an eternal thing. Now, interestingly enough, in my personal opinion, this is just Kevin Williams talking. I do believe that it will be reinstated. Look at the wickedness of the world today. Look at that scripture in Isaiah in 2 Nephi where it talks about seven women to one man. Now, some may argue that scripture may have been fulfilled, but there's going to be a lot of single people, I think, a lot of single females in the next life that we want to be married to a righteous priesthood holder, not saying that I'm the end-all, be-all, but in their mind. And so... Maybe God, in my opinion, God had his reasons for taking it away, but that doesn't mean it's not going to come back. I think it'll have to. Yeah, I I guess I land on that a little bit differently, obviously, just because. And that's okay. And and yeah, no, these are good discussions to have, right? That's one of the other reasons that I had, had you on after I did yours was to show that we can have a respectful dialogue and disagree. Sure. Right. I think oh, that's, yeah. that's hugely important in 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 what it is we do as podcasters. So and we need to have these discussions. I'm glad you're pushing back because it's making me think we need to have. Well, unfortunately, we've lost the. We've lost the I don't know what the, the word is, but we've lost we've lost the ability to disagree agreeably. Yeah. Right? And we've Where, lost the ability to dialogue. Yeah. So we need these conversations. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I do believe there's more that connects us than separates us. Oh, absolutely. Right? In and fact, so I told we, you on the podcast, I think you and I probably agree on 90% of the issues out there, probably. Right. right. So the sure. I, I feel like that in, in our current religious climate, in our current political climate, that, that more conversations like this need to be need to need to happen. So oh, have absolutely. You, have you gotten any pushback from like leadership or anything like that for your podcast? You know, I haven't yet, oddly enough. Uh, I, I don't think my bishop has ever listened. I know some people in my ward have listened and they really liked the podcast. 
where I came out against the church supporting the uh, Respect for Marriage Act. Right. We'll um, get we'll get there in a second. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm just more but curious. So far, about... I did get pushback from a friend of mine, but I expected that. And he's <laughs> older and said, Oh, well, if you don't read Come Follow Me, if you don't do this, 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 statistics are high that people fall away. I'm trying to make give me a guilt trip. Obviously, it didn't work. Right. Would yeah. you make we kind of touched on it earlier. You you kind of thought that the church should have opened up quicker than what they did. Oh, I do. Yeah, as as if you read the book Salamander Letter, or Salamander, Hugh Pinnock was confronted by law enforcement, and Hugh Pinnock just was quiet. And I can't remember who was interviewing him to get information. And he said, "It's okay to admit that you're upset. It's okay to admit that you're mad." I think part of the problem is that generation. You know, the general, I don't know how old Hugh Pinnock was back in 85. He was definitely older, I'd say 70s and 80s. Unfortunately, back in that generation, you did not talk about depression. You did not talk about your feelings, especially if you were a male. Now, thank goodness we've changed. But I think that's probably part of the problem right there is these guys were old and they didn't talk. They didn't want to open up much about how embarrassed they were that's just something a male didn't do in their sure. in their day and i hope that we as a church has changed have changed since then i hope yeah i think so i think maybe we've overcorrected too far but you yeah. know but i think overall you know there look as time goes on, there's no doubt that some things do get better, right? I mean, yeah, we have less people starving today in the world than ever before. That's a great thing. Now, yeah. there's other things that get worse, but yeah, I, I would say that there's probably been some some good headway made there. So, oh yeah. So you kind and of I'm really- actually glad that the church came out with those essays on polygamy and things like that. So the church is starting to finally open up about some things. Yeah, I I reading some of those essays, you can tell that there is a lot cuz the it's not like the church had it's not like there are authorita- authoritative works by somebody out of the quorum of the 12 apostles, right? So so mm-hmm. you get guys who are um quasi you know not quasi some some pretty big named progressive Mormons that yeah. got in there and without naming names and and you could tell that there was there were definitely parts in in all of them where where you could tell they were grasping at straws so to speak right they were like well yeah. we really don't know but here's an idea and so it it's hard to call those like authoritative you know what i mean because yeah. they're, they're so full of of uh bias individual bias that that i think it makes it hard to make them um authoritative yeah, but at least the church is finally coming out and saying, yes, this did happen. And yeah, I agree with what you're saying. But yeah, at least they're coming out and saying, no, we're not going to be shy about it anymore. Yeah, something like this happened. Well, I, I think there, I, I think the church is still a little shy about it, right? I'm, I've always said plural marriage is like the church's drunk uncle that shows up. Oh, gosh, yeah. 
Thanksgiving dinner, right? You're just waiting yeah. for him to say something uncomfortable. And and mm-hmm. you get the feeling like like polygamy is definitely that issue. So what about Yeah, I don't think polygamy was a mistake. But anyway, go ahead. No, no, you're good. What what was your feelings during COVID? I mean, did you feel like the church handled that okay? At first, yes. And here's why. And I could be wrong. This is just one man's opinion. When the church shut down, I had just come off the airplane. Well, I was in an airplane. I was in the air. And when I found out the church was shutting, it was shut down abruptly. I had just come off the airplane. My brother told me. I turned on my phone. It was blowing up with notifications about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, geez, I'm surprised they took this bold of a move. Usually they'd leave it up to the individual uh, wards or stakes or whatever. And I was a little taken aback, but I also thought, well, okay, but this is a worldwide church. This, there is elderly people. And this, you know, let's face it, COVID did affect elderly people much more than someone like you and I. And, you know, let's face it, there's elderly people who are temple workers. So, yeah, as surprised as I was, I could see why the church shut down. I also think this is just my personal opinion, and maybe I received a little cognitive dissonance theory. But as the church was shut down, and my brother and I and his family were doing church at home, I thought, you know what? Maybe there's a deeper reason why the church shut down. Maybe the Lord or President Nelson or both wanted to show us, yes, times will get worse. COVID is nothing compared to what's coming up. Maybe this was a time to prepare us to have home church if things got really bad. And I could be wrong, but that was my way of thinking. But as COVID went on, I became disgusted with the fact that the church was so afraid to open up as we learned more about how this virus works, how it mutated. I always thought that the government was carrying it far too overboard from day one. But I was willing to give the church a little room uh, for reasons I had mentioned, mm-hmm. but I thought, okay, we've, it's obviously, it's obvious we've got some people at the top here who are progressives, liberals, whatever. It's obvious that they are f- buying into this fear mongering crap. The most they could have done is say, we'll leave it to the individual areas, which I think eventually they did. But then when church opened, I thought, it was goofy. I remember going to church. We couldn't sing a song. We could just hear the organ. And I thought, what kind of crap is this? Mm-hmm. And everybody was so afraid to touch each other, shake each other's hand. And I thought, geez, come on. Can we just get over this? Now, I didn't have a problem with them sterilizing the benches after a sacrament sure. meeting because it was still alive and well. I didn't have a problem with that. But for heaven's sakes, let's open wholeheartedly here. And I think, unfortunately, they were letting their fear interfere with reality. So I have somebody who, I shouldn't say I have somebody, 
I have a friend who works up at church headquarters. Okay. And what he had told me is that it was all legal issues, right? Oh, could have been. That, that the church felt like if someone got sick at church, they could be liable for a lawsuit is what it really boiled down to. Um, and so by following verbatim, whatever the government told them to do, they could avoid those lawsuits is kind of what I was told now. Well, that could be. But, and then I have to ask the question, okay, at what point do we just buck the system? I'm not suggesting the church go all anti-government. I don't believe that's a good thing at all. But at what point do we just say, okay, we're just going to risk the lawsuits? At but what Kevin, point have we has has the church ever bucked the government? Well, I think you can make the case in the very very probably. early days. I I think in the beginning maybe I mean Joseph and and Brigham, but I think I think and Taylor obviously, but I think after that, I think we set a pretty good precedent of we'll we'll play ball, right? Yes, unfortunately, and it's a hard line to draw because the church is trying to get into all these countries. But have would it be appropriate for them to leave a country at some point and just say, okay, the government's not letting us practice here anymore? Oh, here's your come follow me material. Practice on your own now. You've done this before. We didn't COVID. Here's your come follow me material. We are authorizing men of the church, the the father of the households, to administer the sacrament or any Aaronic or Melchizedek priesthood holder. You're on your own. Sorry, but the government's kicking us out. You know, at what point would they be willing to do that? Well, I think you have to go back. I mean, and, and I understand where you're coming from on that, but uh -huh. I, I guess we have to look back at what what the church was originally doing right it was it was gathering israel yeah to america right and so maybe maybe the answer isn't hey here's your manual and talk to you later maybe the answer is well i guess maybe we better start gathering again yeah and i don't know you know it's interesting you mentioned that because on my mission a lot of people wanted to come to utah and understandably so but I worried because I think they got this impression that when they got to Utah, all their problems would be solved. Sure. And I remember reading something in the Ensign before we had the Leahona magazine globally that the church wrote a letter saying, don't come to America just because the church is here. You've got to grow this in your own land. So I don't. And I get it because they want to have the church in other countries. And I think my understanding, gathering Zion probably has to do with gathering it in your own area. Now, I don't know how that's going to look in the last days when things get really bad. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I ju I'm just thinking out loud here that maybe the church is worried about coming to, you know, people coming to Utah because, oh my gosh, we're here in Utah. My, and I know this, uh, David, that people outside of Utah, you may have experienced this, especially when you go to Buffalo, New York or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. They think, oh, David's from Utah. Great. David's going to show us how it's done. And maybe the church doesn't want all of that is my is what I think personally. I could be wrong, but I wonder if maybe that's what they're because they're I think the church had reasons to worry about people coming to Utah just to be part of the church. And I think they wanted to warn people, hey, just because you're in Utah doesn't mean your troubles are going away. No, no, I I I, I can see that point of view. I guess my thought would be is that the church, the church, while it's definitely, you know, its headquarters is in Utah and and a large chunk of memberships in Utah, Uh but, but the church itself has influence, you know, as Mormondom is, is pretty regional, right? I mean, if we look at, especially in the Intermountain West, absolutely. I was just going to say, if we look at the Intermountain West, there's a little bit of Utah in every one of those states, right? Oh yeah. Especially (laughs) even where where I'm from in Ontario, we were the minority, but gosh, there was enough of us there. We definitely made an influence. I'll tell you that. Sure. Right. Right. Uh-huh. So, so the, the space problem, I don't necessarily see as an issue. Um, but yeah, no, I just, just, just asking questions is all. Okay. No, I, I think it's a good question because let's face it. If things got really bad, would the state presidents, let's say in Nova Scotia, be able to handle it? How would the area authority handle it? I think your question is valid. Well, not, I'm not thinking from a state president standpoint, what, yeah. what, what, what I'm talking about is let's say the government of, Oh, uh, take your pick. Canada. Well, let's Canada say seems of, to be of going Brazil. pretty, Canada seems to be going pretty hardcore these days. So let's just say the government of Canada was like, no, you know, I think that whole Mormon thing, that's divisive. And that that's, you know, teaching messages that we don't approve of. So we're just going to shut the shut the church down here. Right. Yeah. I I mean, I could easily see the church sponsoring people saying, if you want to come, you've got to fill out a form. You've got to come come up with a good reason. But if you do all that, uh, yeah, we'll sponsor you. I, I don't see why the church couldn't do that eventually. I, I guess I guess I look at that and I say, okay, so maybe that was the wisdom that the Lord had in this this gathering process, right? Uh-huh. And we know from history, from things that Joseph Smith had said, that the, the you would have the center stake of Zion in Missouri, but yet these these same patterns of community would just keep expanding. And so mm-hmm. as as I look at that, I'm like, I, I feel like it's a shame we really got away from this this idea of a physical gathering, because I think there was definite strength there. Right. Sure. And and just like any sort of society there, there is a certain learning period where where certain um, values and customs and practices, I feel like, need to be part in order to maintain that that culture right and by not gathering i think what what we're seeing now is is that that uh the laws that were meant to govern the church aren't necessarily applied equally or as well as they should be because they don't have that influence of of gathering you know you have a point i do know that uh and, no, and maybe this is what you're alluding to. When I was in Nova Scotia, church was very different. Yeah, we still had the three-hour block back then. 
yes, we still were studying the Brigham Young Manual. But while the culture was different, um, it was a whole, and yeah, maybe, is, is that what you're referring, you're referring yeah, to? Yeah, because the, the, the here, Utah culture is so different than the culture of Nova Scotia and so forth. Well, and, and I think we have to be careful that, that LDS culture definitely needs some tweaking. Mormon culture sure. needs some tweaking, right? We, we got yeah. a ways to go before we got this thing dialed in and mastered. I, I do think that there yeah. is a, a bit too much judgment that people cast upon each other, but you don't get past those without trying, right? The, the other thing that, that I would say to that is that one of the reasons that I think the church is having such a rough time right now, kind of holding stuff together is because there hasn't been this, this shared, these shared values. Right. And I don't believe that all cultures and all societies are equal in terms of what they espouse. Right. Look, I'm a very devout Mormon fundamentalist. I live my religion to the utmost that I can, but I could never get behind um, what they do in like Iraq or Afghanistan, where they throw homosexuals off of a roof. Right. I find that. No, I find that appalling. So absolutely. So this idea that all cultures are equal, I don't buy that. Right. I, I, yeah. I just I can't get behind that. If Mormonism was what Joseph said it was. Right. And keep in mind, Joseph Smith never once built a chapel. He helped no. build communities and temples. So if the emphasis really is community, we as Mormons of all stripes, I feel like we haven't done a real good job of, of getting back to that idea of gathering like Joseph and Brigham really pushed. Well, let me ask you this to be found in that. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, Did Joseph Smith, and I'm just asking, because you know a whole lot more about church history than I do. I've got a lot of catching up to do. But did Joseph Smith and Brigham, well, Joseph Smith, did he not build chapels because there was so much persecution going on, or did he just not do it because he didn't want to? Would he have done it in Salt Lake? You've got to have a place to worship each Sunday. Joseph, so, Joseph preached preached under trees. He preached in homes. I think Joseph's vision was way bigger than a church. Right. Joseph didn't Joseph understood. And and you can really get a sense of this in the old writings of the early brethren, that there was a difference between the kingdom of God and the church. And Joseph was way he understood that the church was kind of the gate by which you entered the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I don't think Joseph was terribly concerned with building chapels. I think he was in the mindset of, we need community. What about Brigham Young? Was he concerned about building chapels? He was. He was. It, but that wasn't till later in his life. And I think a lot yeah. of things transpired that, that caused Brigham to go that direction. Yeah. But also you have to remember, too, is that for the first time, when, when Brigham 
and the Saints set up shop in Utah, they're outside the United States. And for the first yeah. time, I think they feel very secure, right? Now, I do think Joseph had every intention of having a, a temple in Kirtland, having a temple in Nauvoo, having a temple in um, in, uh, in in Missouri. So I, I think that Joseph was very cognizant of that. But I also think that he understood that those were communities first and foremost, right? He's not worried about building chapels because he wants to establish a a Zion like Enoch had. And so oh. his his vision was was well above where where I think most people's were. Well, maybe so. Joseph Smith does come across to me as someone that was very idealistic. Let me ask you this though. If we don't have chapels, um, how would we as members get to know each other? Because especially in places like Buffalo, New York, where there's not many of us around. Well, it, I can I can would... I can speak from a very fundamentalist standpoint here. Okay. Um, and, and that is is that you would you would essentially meet in other people's homes, and that's where fellowship would happen, right? Like the the church I attend. There is a chapel and a temple in Nevada, but for everybody who lives like in northern Utah, we meet in people's homes. Okay. And there is there's a different spirit when you meet in somebody's home, right? There you're it typically tends to be much more relaxed. You tend to be able you tend to have the ability to ask deeper questions. Um and the the other thing is, is that something happens when you invite a person or people into your home. There, there's a different bond that's connected. And so I can only answer this as a fundamentalist, but I think it's a, a, a valid argument because we know Joseph did it this way, is that that preaching and that teaching takes on a much more personal feel in that kind of environment. Well, let me ask you this. Um, and I think this is a good discussion. This is just uh, me thinking. What about, okay, in today's, what about the youth? What about youth activities? What about where you get the young men's together, have an activity? How would you do things like that if we just met each, in each other's homes and we had no chapels, no wards or whatever? Because mm -hmm. you've got to keep these activities going or you're going to lose membership dramatically. I'm not saying having outlandish activities is the best idea, but you know how I you know when I was a teenager, I went to church. Well, I started having a change of heart. When I was a senior in high school, I went to church because I wanted to learn the lessons. But before that, I just cared about cute girls and hanging out with people my age, although I didn't have a lot of friends in church at that point, but that's another story. But How'd you keep things like that going? Well, I think it ultimately has to start at home, right? And if there's one thing I'm willing to, to get behind the LDS church on, it's that I think it was probably a good idea to have more home time and less church time. Because if yeah. you're relying on the church to keep your kid active, good luck. Good luck. Because if they're not seeing it at home, it does not matter. It does not matter one bit. Now, having said that, I can tell you that my wife uh, 
has been called to a position to help the young women out up here in Utah for, for our, our church. Oh, and again, we don't have, um, we don't have a tremendous amount of youth, but she still has that responsibility. And so it it's just a matter of, of, you know, okay, maybe you go over to someone's house and you learn some life skills, you know, whether that's balancing your checkbook or whether that's learning how to cook or first aid or any of those other things, right? Yeah. I think I think we we maybe put too much emphasis on the building, right? And not enough emphasis on what's happening inside the building. Yeah, I I guess I just can't get over the logistical the logistical purposes maybe maybe there's a bit of a bigger vision i've got to be honest if i had i do miss the three hour block and i'm one of the few people that does why because i felt like we could get into deeper conversations in a three-hour block my my i love my brother but he's not a deep thinker like you and i and we just don't get into deep conversations I feel like we got a lot done in three hours, but I guess I'm just trying to think what would we do with war dinner, state conference and all that. You know, there's a reason why they structured it the way they did. What, how would you handle all that? That general well, conference every six months? Yeah, we, we still have that in the church I attend. We meet every six months. Everybody drives down to, to where the church is centered at in Nevada and we have a a general conference. We call it solemn assembly because that's what's referred to in the uh, in the scriptures in the doctrine and covenants. But it's oh, the okay. same principle. It's a it's a general conference type of thing. And so we all get to you know everybody comes from all over to attend those. Um. Oh wow. So yeah, no, there's 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 definitely some. Now, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Do they broadcast it over the internet for those that can't make it down there? Um, you know, I don't know if they do or not. Um, okay. I know I know that in our normal church meetings, we broadcast those. Oh. Okay. We broadcast those. Yeah, we 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 typically start church around 1 p.m. and that's because we have a lot of investigators from the LDS church that come over. Oh so yeah, we have found that our our best time to do it is after most wards have had their their sacrament meetings and that sort of stuff in the LDS church, and then we we go ahead and have our meeting. But yeah, we know we broadcast those, and we got folks that are even overseas that uh, oh my gosh that tune tune into those. So we're we're very liberal about handing out that link. So yeah, so yeah, if you want it, I can give it to you as well. Yeah, I would be interested. So now, do you have three-hour church? Is how how long is the? Because uh, I assume after sacrament you break off and go to Sunday school or whatever. Uh, not necessarily. It depends on how many okay. people are there. Um, okay. Typically, what we do, and and again, it it does resemble, um, what the church looked like in the Doctrine and Covenants early on, right? So yeah, the folks down in Nevada, they they have. A, a building a, a chapel right that they do use uh -huh. and so they'll break off for like youth sunday school then but for us what what we tip there's there's no time limit or um 
time requirements on our meetings. We go exclusively by the spirit. And also, uh, you know, I, I guess another interesting tidbit is that um, they kind of do what they used to do in the old days, right? Where, where the leadership uh, that's there is inspired to call people to come expound on doctrine, right? At, at a moment's notice. So it does, it does get you in the mindset of, I better, I better be living close to the spirit because we don't know when, when we'll be called on to, to talk. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it, so there's no time limits, right? It's not nearly as structured as, as what the LDS church is just because we tend to go by, by the spirit a lot on those things. Right. And we, we feel like if someone's really feeling the spirit and is expounding doctrine, it's probably a good thing to hear them out. Interesting. Okay. But back, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking of, uh, you know, if we didn't have, if, uh, I'm imagining if the president Nelson came out in the next general conference and said, we're going to do away with chapels. I'm thinking, Wow, uh, I I know this will not happen, but I could see something like that maybe happening in phases as things get worse in the world. I could see President Nelson or whoever saying, "Okay, we're going to do things a little bit differently in this area or whatever just because things might get so bad." But I just I can't comprehend it just seems like to me there's a reason why chapels were built and all the wards meet together and those type of things. It certainly has given us a definite social aspect. We meet people that we ordinarily wouldn't meet because of the chapel. I don't know. It's an interesting concept. But don't you think that that um, social aspect may have become uh, too much of a factor? And and let oh, me, absolutely. Let, I, let, let me let me back that up with this: okay. is that I was still in the LDS Church. And in leadership in the LDS church, when the first days of COVID and the first days of lockdown happened. Yeah. And so what we noticed immediately, Kevin, was that, you know, the LDS church lost some folks, right? You all of a sudden found out, you know, how many people it was important to based off of a social aspect and how many people it was important to them based off of a doctrinal aspect. And, and the church definitely lost some membership during during the lockdowns because all of a sudden, if it wasn't there um, and the social part was your main driver, well, you know, that then, then it's going to fall by the wayside. So I do think that there is now, a Now, the danger. argument would be, okay, we're separating the wheat from the tares. Your point is well valid, though. So, yeah, I mean... When And that's one of the fascinating things about Mormonism, right, is because it is a society unto itself to, oh, yeah. to a large degree, and it is a culture unto itself. Um, but if if the social aspects take precedent over the doctrine, there's there's some problems to be had there. You have a point. Your point as well. You have a point. And maybe that's part of why President Nelson said we're doing home study. You have a point. Well, yeah, I guess I guess the other thing is, too, is that I think at some level you have to either be prepared to do that or have someone who's willing to show you how to do that. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that, that 
when COVID came around, nobody understood fully how to do it. Right. And yeah. uh, I, I've often, I've often thought if those times ever came for the LDS church, I sure hope that they go to their fundamentalist brethren to say, okay, how you guys been doing this? You have a point. Cause the vast majority of fundamentalists tend not to meet in groups, right? They tend to be families and some close associates. So they're, they really are very well positioned to be able to carry the work forward with diminished physical resources available. Yeah, I I don't know. You, you're making me think here, but that's a good thing. Um, you have a very valid point. You know, there's a lot of people that go to church, especially I've noticed youth and young adults that just go for the social aspect. Yeah, yeah, and... And that's not and that always... can be very bad sometimes too, if that's all and, you're basing your testimony on. And to be fair, though, it's also good, right? There is something to be said for you know learning by osmosis, right? Just yeah. being there, right? I think it was yeah. Vince Lombardi who said, you know, ninety percent of success is just showing up. So the yeah, we all go, th- we all have to do that fake it till we make it kind of thing. But at some point, you need your own light, and you can't borrow somebody else's. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, maybe that's another reason why the church shut down during COVID is maybe they wanted to weed out or God wanted to weed out the wheat and the tares. It's just a thought. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I guess I would have been part of that. The tares <laughs> and that then because I, I went off and joined a fundamentalist sect. So Yeah, but you're still a defender of the Restoration and Book of Mormon. There's a, there's a difference, but I know what you mean. Right, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's all interesting things. I, like I yeah, said, I, I, yeah, and, and you, I'm not trying to beat up the LDS Church. I'm really not. I, I've no, I get before, it. I, I enjoyed my time there, and I feel like it prepared me for what I'm doing now in some ways. But I think... I think at some point, so someone's going to look back on fundamentalists and go, maybe they got some points. Maybe we should go look at them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, if we could just get people over the fact that not every fundamentalist is like Warren Jeffs. That's the problem. Right. The media has given fundamentalist Mormons a bad rap. Yeah, yeah, they have. I mean, and that's one of those things I think we'll continue to struggle against for a while. Yeah, you know, well, it's unfortunate. But- one of my hopes in doing this podcast was is that it would inspire, you know, more people to kind of come out of the shadows and say, yeah, you know, we've been living this way for a long time and, and, and that sort of thing. And gosh, like, like I said on your podcast, Kevin, I, I haven't met personally a fundamentalist yet who was like, I'm totally for underage brides, right? You just don't yeah. really see it. It, it's reserved, it seems to be, for, for the tyrants and for the false priests who oppress. I don't know how else to say it. So, um, yeah, the Warren Jeffs, the the Kingstons, I think you, you can see some definite issues there. But the, the vast, vast, vast majority of fundamentalists, you never know them. You pro- you That's know. the problem is... Yep. And no offense to you, but I think people like you need to start speaking out more, not just on your podcast. Maybe you can go to the media. I don't know how you're going to do it. Your podcast is awesome. 
Well, but I appreciate that. I'm a clown with a microphone, though. Than, maybe not you as a person, but your group has to do more. I don't know if they can get in front of the media or what. You know, fundamentalists are, especially right now, in kind of a a weird transitionary period, right? Because you have you have this old guard who have some very valid concerns, right? These were people who had their kids taken away for simply yeah. living living the gospel to the dictator. Are you talking about heart. the Warren Jeps crowd specifically or everybody? Well, yeah. I mean, do, do you know the history of how the Jeffs came into power down there in Short Creek? Well, I think so. I don't know. I heard a podcast. I'm not going to mention his name, but I, I heard a podcast with someone who grew up in that, and my understanding is Warren Jeps came into power because his father was into power. He died, and so he took over because it was the a line of authority thing. And, well, know, they... that's that's not necessarily true. Uh, not necessarily the whole truth. So you have to go back to uh, the latter days of World War II, actually. So oh. the... And, and again, I'm not throwing stones here. I'm just I'm just yeah. telling you what I've read and also what I've had really good historians on this podcast tell me. Okay. Um, the LDS Church during the 40s was was really trying to kind of get rid of that fundamentalist end of 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 the Mormon religion, right? They they wanted to be done with it. So they yeah. actually had some sympathetic members who were part of the Arizona um, Highway Patrol and that. And so they decided, OK, we're going to do we're going to go raid that compound down in Arizona. Back in Creek. the 40s? Yep. Back in the okay. 40s. And we're going to go ahead and we're just going to put an end to this. We're going to put the men in jail. We're going to separate the families. Doesn't it sound an awful lot like the Edmunds Tucker's Act from the 1830s? Yeah. I mean, 1850s. Anyway, so they go in there and they arrest these men. They take the children into protective custody. And what's fascinating is, Kevin, is that it's the rest of the nation that comes to their defense. Actually, uh, I can't remember what magazine it was, but the magazine that featured the story about what had happened started to receive hundreds and hundreds of e of um, um, pieces of mail from even soldiers overseas saying, we're here fighting for people's freedoms. And, and these people just got their their kids taken away for living their religion. And this was so, during World War Two. It was. Yeah, it was. Huh. It, OK. It was, and so. Um, and there were several more raids before it was over, but finally they returned the children, but the damage had been done. So when Leroy Butler, who was the original leader down there in Short Creek, when he dies, Jeff's dad is able to establish power. And he does it by saying, look, the world hates you. And the proof is they came to take your kids. And the only way for you to remain safe is to listen to me. Now, oh. that's bad enough. But then you get Warren Jeffs that comes behind him. And as we know, he is absolutely a tyrant and a monster. 
and somebody who was just brutal in everything he did. But yeah. when you when you have a people that not only have are that you've convinced, but you can point back to and say, look, they did come for your kids. So you have to listen to me so I can keep you safe. Right. And and if you have a problem, you come to me. You don't go to the outside world because they're there to take away your kids. Well, what does that do to a people? It forces them into the darkness, right? It forces them into the corners yeah. of society. So all of that was able to be done because we had forced an entire people into the shadows. Now, back to your original question is we still have a lot of people. Um, I go to church with a couple of them who either remember those days or were actually part of those days, right? Where kids were taken from their families. And so we're in an inter interesting period where we still have some of that old guard who I just love dearly because they sacrificed so much to keep the religion going. But they're like, you you can't go out there. You can't be public because you're you're risking the children and everything else. And, and I get a sense that there's a newer generation who's more willing to talk about it. So I think at least for a while, we're going to be in this in this phase of, of kind of trying to strike a good balance. Does that make sense? And I think that's why you, yeah. you haven't seen more people step out and be public, but it, that tide is turning, right? Um, it, it's beginning to go the other direction. So I, I, I have great hopes that it's going to happen. Um, I might be a bit early in starting my podcast, but I, I think that, that there's more to come. And I have been pleasantly surprised that as I have talked with, other fundamentalists on the podcast, they've always been, while they've been apprehensive about, well, I, I don't think I'm your guy, or I, I don't think I have much to say. By and large, they're they're really excited to do it because I think I think they can recognize that for perhaps for the first time they get to tell their own story, and I, I think that's just kind of where we're at now. Um, I have great hopes for the future. I think I think we're only going to continue to be more visible. And I've said this for a lot of years here in Utah is that for folks living in Utah, you probably work with a fundamentalist and you don't even know it. Oh, I probably met a fundamentalist in Cedar City and didn't know it in the grocery store or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I have great hopes, but but there there is a large segment of fundamentalists that still bear those societal scars from from having their families taken. Yeah. And understandably so. Right, right. I would be the same way. If I had to endure something like that, I'd be the exact same way. I I yeah. think, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to protect my family at all costs. So I can definitely understand that, that line of thinking. But I also look at the times we live in now, and I see an increasing darkness coming about, right? And I'm just going to call a spade oh, yeah. a spade here. I see the rise of the LGBTQ movement. And certainly I wouldn't deny them their rights to live how they see fit. But if they can be out in the open, why can't we? Exactly. Why can't we? Why can't we say, yeah, you know what? I do have more than one spouse. Or you know what? Yeah, I do believe the Adam God doctrine or any number of things. And then have an intelligent, respectful dialogue about it. Yeah, like what we are doing here. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think if... I think if, if the powers that be 
in the LDS church and maybe some fundamentalist sects were to be able to uh, get past their own animosity towards each other. I think there's so much we could learn from each other. And, oh, and, yeah. And I don't see why we have to hate each other. I mean, maybe we don't hug it out on Sundays, but there's no reason no. we can't stand together on some very important issues. I've said Absolutely. for a while, and and you're not the first LDS guy I've had on this podcast. I've had on Ken Peterson, and I've had on uh, Hannah Stoddard, and and um, and uh, uh, Kimberly Watson Smith, and they'll both be on again. Um, but my point has been is that look, the other side is coming for every one of our kids. They're not no. just going after the LDS kids. They're not just going after the fundamentalist kids. The, the lies and the false narratives around our history are geared towards us all. If we believe that Joseph Smith was the prophet of the restoration and that Brigham Young was his successor, we all have a dog in this fight and we can have our own theological differences later. But right now it really should be all hands on deck. Oh, absolutely. That's, uh, that's one reason, not the only reason, but that's one reason I have no problems being friends with you is because of what you just said. Now there's other reasons why we're good friends, but that is one of them. Yes. So, yeah, no, I, I, I just find that that the differences that separate us shouldn't separate us as much as they are. Like I said, we yeah. may not be able to hug it out on Sundays, but there's no reason we can't do a, a a work project or a service project together on a Saturday. No, and there's no reason why I can't have dinner with you or whatever in your house on a Saturday night or something like that. Right. Yeah, likewise, uh, there's no reason why you can't have dinner at my house on a Saturday night or whenever. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think I think there's plenty of room within Mormonism for all of us. Yeah. And uh, I, I, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see where things go. My fear is how far can we go down this road as LDS people supporting these causes, LGBT causes, uh, nothing right. gets the LGBT community. I know wonderful people that are gay or whatever, but how long can we support these causes where they're trying to push it into our schools and confuse the masses before the church just, I just hope the church does not go off the deep end. I don't think it will, but I I hope to high heaven we can get ourselves back on track with that particular issue and maybe other issues. You know, I, I think this is my perspective looking in on it, and I could be wrong, but I, I think the LGBTQ agenda, and I'm not saying everybody who's gay or lesbian or whatever feels this way. I would dare to say the vast majority don't. But I think the powers that are the most vocal within that movement are playing a different game than the leadership of the LDS church, right? I think the LDS yeah. church is thinking still, okay, they just want acceptance or tolerance or whatever. But I think the other side is playing a different game in which not only are you going to tolerate it, but we're going to win at all costs. At some point, you well, will seal two men together or two women together. Well, that so goes back to a talk, apparently, and I tried to find this. I couldn't find it. 
maybe you know, apparently Neil A. Maxwell gave a talk in a general conference that said if something to the effect that you might be working with people that tolerate you, and he wasn't specific, but I think we can guess who he was talking about, maybe not a certain group specifically, but just certain groups. But he apparently said, there will be a time where they hate you. They tolerated you, but now they hate you. Yeah, yeah. I think I think right now, as it stands, is that that side, the, the LGBTQ agenda, not, not individual people, yeah. but, but the agenda and the people that are driving the agenda are playing a game in which they fully intend to win. They will not rest until... There are, I don't know how else to say it, and this I don't mean this as an attack. I'm just saying what I see until the church will seal two men together in, no. in matrimony. I think the LDS church leadership is playing a game of, well, if we just surrender a little bit more, maybe that will appeasement, appease them. Well, it kind of goes back. You give us an inch, we'll give you you you, you take right. an inch, we'll get a mile out of you. Right. And and so I think it's very much I think the church is very much in a Neville Chamberlain kind of mentality right now, right? We'll have peace in our time. While the other side has no intent on peace unless it's through total victory. So oh. I, I think I think for the LDS church, and this is just again from what I hear from the inside. Yeah. And uh, from from what I see is that I don't think that they realize they're in the kind of scrap that they're in. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered that, too. I think you're right. And the other problem is we have uh, more liberal people in the Quorum of the Twelve. I know Elder Uchtdorf is more liberal. Yeah. As opposed to Dallin A. Chokes. I don't know about Tom uh, Todd Christofferson or any of those, but that's a problem, too. We have these people that are, okay, they might be getting revelation from God, but they're human, and they're going to have their politics or whatever, call it whatever. And yeah. that's that's a problem, too. I think this is where we have to be so grounded yeah. in not just history, but in truth and in principle that we let maybe some of those feelings about politics um, be driven by our, our doctrine, right? Certainly, um, certainly we, there, there should always be a ch separation between church and state. Yes, I think everybody's in, state... in favor of that, in favor of that. But yeah, but this idea has that been skewed, right? This idea that that uh, that politics and religion will never mingle—that's not true either, nope. right? Uh, no. Because religion is the vehicle by which morality can be delivered and taught, and really, the government is established to protect people's rights. So. At some point, you will have intersections between morality and religion and politics and government, right? I think I think abortion is a prime example of that, right? Where morality, religion, politics, and government intersect, and 
you have to figure out which one's more important. Yeah, and it's it does bother me that the church does not work with some of these anti-abortion groups, even though it's worldwide. I think I would love to have a bishop, my bishop, get up there and give a whole sermon on Roe v. Wade and the politics and the overturning and how we have to stay in this fight. I'd love to hear a powerful sermon like that from my bishop. Right. I, I think the church is in a position now where they have to they have to be a little careful, right? Because such a large portion of their membership is pretty far left these days. Yes, unfortunately. So I think it's just kind of the 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 waters that they're forced to navigate at the moment. Yeah. But anyway, you were pretty you were pretty fired up. I listened to your episode on when uh when the church came out in support of the Defense of Marriage Act, or oh yeah, well I don't like the fact that the BYU professors are teaching this BS of oh we got a you know the gender there's more than one gender this is BYU for heaven's sakes right right and I'm curious as to why we're not hearing more of Jeffrey R Holland talks about what you know he gave a pretty powerful talk i i don't know if i want to use condemn but almost condemning some of the byu mm -hmm. professors and once the lgbt and the dissonances in the church the patrick masons got a hold of that you didn't hear a word did they have something to do with the brother not talking about it again or what you i know, think we I, need to know i i i'm with you i'm with you i think we need to know um one of the things I've wondered about, I'm not saying that this is what it is, but one thing that's crossed my mind is, is, is the LDS church just waiting for the old guard to die off and then they'll make. Yeah. I have to wonder. Feel appropriate. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a fair question. I hope not, but it's a, it's a real possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, uh, I tore my knee up a few years back, I, I tore my ACL and stuff. And so I had like a ton of time on my hands. And uh, as I rehabbed and, and got, got it back working. So in, in that process, I'm like, I am completely bored. There was only so much Madden football I could play on the Xbox before I just went stir crazy. <laughs> so, so I read yeah. a bunch, I played a lot of video games. And finally I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go take some classes because we lived really close to UVU, Utah Valley University. Oh, yeah. And so I would just go over there and I would just pay for classes, right? I wasn't looking for a major or anything else. So I took I took courses in anthropology. I took a lot on political science. And as I would get teamed up with some of these these and I hate to call them this, but kids, right? These, these, these young yeah. adults. Well, you can call them kids. Yeah. But what I've, what I noticed was, is that they don't have the same thoughts like guys like you and I do, right? Where we tend to say, okay, we got to keep marriage between men and women. They say, well, why can't two men get married? I don't get it. I don't see what the big deal is. I don't see why the church is so hard on it. And so I'm a little nervous for the, for the upcoming generation. Oh, I am too. You know, we got to tell people God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Right. 
Right. But then they're going to come back and say, oh, well, science says this and science says that people are born homosexuality. I actually happen to believe that there are people that are born that way. But for whatever reason, uh, you know, well, I think we know God wants us to procreate and uh, have sex and, you know, procreate the right way. And being homosexual violates that law. Now, that's I don't I, I can't judge a homosexual's salvation. That's between them and the Lord. But we know from the Bible, it says, especially in the Old Testament, very much preaches against homosexuality. Yeah. So I feel bad for those that and I do believe there are people that legitimately struggle with same-sex attraction. In fact, I know somebody whose son does. I feel bad for him because he's a member of the church, and he has every reason to hate the church, but he is willing to defend it to the day he dies, and I I have to admire somebody like that. Yeah, no, I'm there with you. You know, if if there's someone that's struggling with that, I, I'll stand with them. I'll help them, right? Yeah. But But at the same time, you know, if, if they go out and become you know, practicing homosexuals, there's not much I can do there. Right. I, we're again, we can be cordial. I will stand by for your right to live your life. Like you want, I will make sure you don't get tossed off the building. Right. But yeah. I don't think we get the same. I, I don't think that's reciprocated to our side. Right. Well, I, no. And I, I've been reading a book by Julie Bellum or Belling. I don't know if you've heard of her. You got to have I her haven't. on the podcast. I've been reading her book. and I Oh, you have? I haven't heard of her. Okay. Very fascinating book. I'm reading her book, uh, Beneath Sheep's Clothing. And she talks about, you know, she makes it very clear. If you're an LGBT person, I feel bad for you. If you've been persecuted, I feel bad if... You know, if you've been uh, alienated by religion, and let's face it, there are people that have been and are very hurt by religion and even the LDS religion, and I feel bad. Mm -hmm. But she goes on to say, we cannot preach this in our schools to young kids like uh, it's one extreme and confuse the kids about gender. You know, she said, we need to talk about things like this at an appropriate age. And I I like the way she worded it. She worded it much better than me. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, what was her name again? Julie Belling. You ought to have her on the podcast. I can give you her contact info. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, I I think you're right. I think you're hundred percent correct. And I and I think the church is now at a crossroads, right? Yeah. Um because I do think that there is a large chunk of the upcoming generation that someday will be leaders in the LDS church. And I'm not sure they have the same grounding that you and I do uh, when it comes to marital relationships, right? Um, you have a whole segment of this younger generation that has come along that doesn't look at the proclamation <laughs> to the family as, as divinely inspired. Yeah. Yeah. And I've often wondered why the church hasn't just canonized that, because that would put that all to bed real quickly. Well, I think I know what they would say. They say, well, we got to be Christ-like. We got to accept everybody. We got to be kind to everybody. Yeah, to a point, but when it starts affecting doctrine and when they start shoving it down us, 
like that baker in Colorado, who I understand the uh, the circuit court of appeals or the state court wouldn't take his case again. We got to take action. Yes, I definitely believe in being Christ-like. Yes, I believe in being kind to my LGBT brothers and sisters. That's what the gospel is all about. But there's a point where you have to step your foot down and say no, uh, because they've been teaching the non. You know, there's more than one gender and things like that. Right. Yeah. Right. And even Abs- Jesus Christ was firm. He knocked over the tables I was, in the temple. That's exactly where I was going. Even the Savior knocked over a few tables. Yeah, so, exactly. Yep. And who's to say he didn't yell at the other federal government authorities out there? We don't know. Right. Right. Well, yeah. look, I think Christ gets painted in pastel colors a lot. But I think if if you if you really get some background in in Hebrew culture of that time period, what you'll find is that the Savior, the Savior's message was pretty radical, right? There weren't a lot of yeah. There there weren't a lot of organizations that really liked him, right? No. Nope. Um they uh you know, you had the Romans that didn't like him, you had the religious establishment of the day that didn't like him. And to a certain degree, I think we'd all better get really comfortable with this idea of not being liked by the world. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting. My brother is so worried about social norms, and I'm thinking, okay, it's okay to be different. I'm not worried about it like you are. Well, not only not only is it okay to do so, I, I think the Lord had set up his people to be different, right? A peculiar people unto the Lord. So in, in some ways, if we're fitting too much into society, I think that needs to be a red flag. Yeah. I don't know. I sometimes wonder if I fit too much into society. Who no, knows? I, I <laughs> think you're just fine, Kevin. I wouldn't sweat that too much. <laughs> okay. So, but, but yeah, no, you and I, we're, we're pretty clo- close together on that. And I can say I'd... I don't fit very well, and I'm pretty sure that that anyone that heard your podcast probably feels the same way about you. So, but yeah, um, yeah, no, it, it's all fascinating stuff. But well, dude, we're pushing two hours here. Yeah, great conversation. I, I've got to admit, you made me think about some things, but that's good though. Well, yeah, no, and likewise too. Absolutely. So absolutely, we, we'll need to do this again sooner than later, Kevin. Yeah, I do want to talk to you off the podcast if I can. I don't know what's your schedule. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, we'll do that. So, dude, thanks for coming on. What's the name of your podcast again? LDS Life Podcast. And unfortunately, I don't have an email address. Maybe I should get one set up uh, this week. Yeah, uh, set, it, but- set it up this week, Kevin, and I'll throw it in the, the page notes. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, in the meantime, though, you can go to Apple Podcast or Spotify. I, I know I'm on Apple and Spotify, probably other places, and get it there. All right, perfect. And so, the yeah. server is anchor.fm, for those of you that wonder, where, who's my podcast provider? Absolutely. All right, good deal. Go check that out, everybody. All right, thanks for having me on, David. Yep, you bet, man. Bye, everybody.
You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.